Everyone, remain calm. Yeah, ooh, ah, that's how it always starts. And later there's running and screaming. Somebody talk to me, what is happening? Welcome to Jurassic World. You're listening to the Jurassic Park Podcast. You want to consult here or in my bungalow? <laughs> Hold on to your butt. Well, we're back. Hello and welcome to the 137th episode of the Jurassic Park Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Jost, and we are here to discuss all things Jurassic Park. You may notice that this episode is coming just a little bit later than usual. I uh, was really sick this past weekend. I had some food poisoning, so I'm just starting to recuperate. So hopefully it doesn't sound too bad. You can probably hear it on my voice that it sounds like I'm a little out of breath. But uh, we'll try to give you a normal show as usual. There was a bit of news this week regarding, uh, you know, gaming and um, how good the trailer did for Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom at the Super Bowl. Uh, That's my quick hit. I'm not going to go into them anymore in the news segment because, as I said, still not feeling too, too great here. So we'll stick with that for now. But to start off the episode, we're going to present episode 16 of Extinction Level Jurassic Park. Now, the last episode featured some serious emotions from Sarah Harding, and the episode left everybody with about two hours before the government destroyed the island. In store for us this week are some new dinosaurs, even more tie-ins to Jurassic Park 3, and some great additions to the Extinction Level cast. After Extinction Level, I'll give my thoughts in the after show, wrapping up some of the best moments from episode 16, and then Arjun will give us a quick look at some extinct scenes from Extinction Level Jurassic Park. Following all that, we'll feature the actual first volume from the Missing Compies here on this podcast. They have their own podcast out there currently, which actually featured mailbag specialist Jennifer Tarek as a guest last week. But this week, in Volume 1, here, host Justin Kiley and today's co-host Elizabeth Harding will chat about how Fallen Kingdom may compare to the novels and also discuss a few differences between the books and the films. And to round out the show, we'll head into the Innovation Center and hear from Tom Fishenden before the contest that he is running comes to an end next week. And I do have a few notes here before we get started on the actual show. This one actually pertains to that contest that I just mentioned. Tom is giving away a Terramimus, which you could win via our website. There is a contact form on there for all the entries. You can do a few things to gain a few entries. The contest is closing at 12 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on February 19th, with the winner to be announced later that week. So don't miss out on the opportunity to win one of the cooler items from the Hasbro line for Jurassic World. Moving on, Tom also visited the UK exhibition Dinosaurs in the Wild, where he traveled back in time to view dinosaurs in their natural habitat and got a look at their lab featuring created dinosaurs and a few experiments along the way. You know, it really looked like it was an awesome exhibition and he wrote about it with a full look at it, um, along with some really cool pictures on our website. Head to the link in the uh, show notes. You can actually find that article on JurassicParkPodcast.com as well. But anyway, we have a packed episode for you, so why don't we get this one started off with episode 16 of Extinction Level Jurassic Park. Previously on Extinction Level Jurassic Park. Henry, good to have you back. We found your stray guests. They were at the compound. Vic, get your team and go. First day tomorrow. Tomorrow? Trust me, we have a better chance in the morning. All right, daylight tomorrow morning. Sure thing. And take Murphy. The kid? Why? It's what I brought him here for. Henry, have you seen Raymond? We had a little incident. I need my pilot. There will be a supply ship early morning. That will be the backup plan. These dead carcasses can wash up anywhere. Alert our contact at the government. The quarantine on these Lasorner is failing. These animals should all be destroyed. I'm not the right person to take over. Tim, what's going on? We spotted a few people on the island yesterday. Can I join you? I could use the distraction. Dr. Harden, these are the guys. Andy, Laura, Dennis, Bob, and Sydney. Hop on. We'll start at the old research facility. What is the ETA on that supply ship? They expect to be ready in 45 minutes. I will leave for the dog at once. Engine control, this is the captain of the USS Carl Vinson speaking. You are to prepare for evacuation and will be placed under quarantine. The island will be destroyed. Two hours. Inform your boss and make ready. Trust me, you do not want to be on that island when the airstrike hits. 
Episode 16 Encounter An Isla Matanceros, Marty Guterres was saying his goodbyes at the edge of the village, not having slept much but grateful for the bed and breakfast so generously offered. He thanked Andrea and Gonzalo, who saw him off, while the helicopter was starting up behind him. Gracias por todo. Buena suerte. Guterres turned to get on the helicopter, when he hears the engine of the helicopter suddenly turning off. Confused, Marty stopped walking, seeing the pilot of the helicopter getting out, giving Marty a confused look back. I'm sorry, señor. No flight soon? Te ha extendido. Extended. Incluido todas las cinco muertes durante al menos las próximas tres horas. What? Why? They no say. Who? La Armada de los Estados Unidos. This answer stuns Marty. That's fast. On Isla Sorna, the three engine Humvees stopped on the side of the road at the suggestion of Tim. To the left, they can see the old research center a short distance away. A security team of five armed guards get out and look into the jungle, checking if all is secure. Then Vic Hoskins also gets out, signaling Sarah and Tim to follow him and his team. I think they ran that way, from the building. It would explain the hadrosaur herd stampede afterwards, because of the raptors following them. Vic hands Sarah and Tim a tranquilizer gun and turns to his team, signaling them silently to enter the jungle on the side of the road, in the direction Tim pointed. The guards start moving cautiously, side by side, turning around one by one to cover the way they came in a coordinated rhythm. Vic joined his team in the center and Sarah and Tim followed close behind. You said Dr. Grant was among them? Yes, it was from a distance, but he looked very much like Dr. Grant. Shh. At the same time, the walkie-talkie on Vic's hip starts cracking. Vic takes the walkie-talkie and clicks it off. Silently, they crossed the small patch of jungle to the bright green field where the hadrosaur herd is now back, grazing gently. One of the animals spots them walking along the side of the field at the jungle line, but it recognizes no threat in them and turns its attention back to the grass. The eight humans cross the field cautiously, passing the herd slowly, not to spook them, and reaching the other side of the field, they enter the jungle again, leaving the animals peacefully behind them. Over there! About 80 yards away, the guard spotted the body on the ground under a tree. The team moves for the body to find a balding man with a thick blonde mustache. Well, this one didn't make it. Tim, you know this man? Tim comes closer to take a look. No, I don't know this man. One of the guards, Andy, crouched down to check for a heartbeat in the neck. He notices a strange way the neck is bent, and he examines the body closer. Yeah, he's gone. Weird, just one slash in his back. But they killed him by breaking his neck. No sign they would eaten him. Always thought these raptors were funny creatures. The other guards spread out to cover the ground around for clues. Then Laura calls from a few yards away, kicking something with her feet, which makes a soft clanging sound. Found something over here. She crouches down, picks up the object and gets up again, showing the object. Looks like a gas can. I gas them? Well then, they came prepared. Engine property, sir. I see two more. Where would they have gotten them? From the buildings, maybe? Ah, uh, unlikely. A few weapons engine held on this island were stored near the operations building in the worker village. Wow. Seems the others got away and are no longer here. I think you waited too long, Victor. Now you'll have to go look for them again. Guys, any other trace of them? From a short distance away, guard Bob looks back. I found footprints leading that way. There seem to be three adults, sir, and likely the woman too. They are reasonably fresh marks, probably from this morning. Guard Laura, who found the cans a short distance in the other direction, also calls back. Found footprints here too. Leading the other way though. Ground's hardened already. Would think they're from last night. Small feet and big feet. Two women among them? I've only seen one. Seems like they separated. Two of them moved north, the others moved west. I uh, guess we'll follow the biggest group. In the direction of the aviary. We could split up and track both leads. I'm not splitting up my men. It's enough we're trying to help them get off this island alive. If they split up, that's their problem. Suddenly, one of the hadrosaurs in the field they crossed calls out. A single distant honk. Tim is the first to respond. He quickly spins around nervously to look back. What's that? Sarah also turns to look. Sounded like an alerting call. <laughs> You're not spooked by these brain-dead cows now, are you? Tim is looking intently at the bushes between them and the hadrosaurs. Without looking back, he whispers to Vic. 
That's not what caught my attention. Tim becomes aware of the gun in his hands and puts it at his shoulder. Aiming past Laura, who is standing closest to the bushes, she turns to look over her shoulder to see what Tim is aiming at, but sees nothing. What are you aiming at? Right behind her at waist height, the head of a 3 meters long Herrerasaurus appears, its head lowered teeth bared, ready to attack. But confused by the other guards, it hesitates. Laura fumbles with a gun, twisting and falls over backwards, looking up at the Herrerasaurus. The four other guards from their spread positions take to their weapon to take aim. Tim, already aiming, fires his gun, swishing the dart away. It hits targets, high on the right side of the Herrerasaurus neck. The dinosaur tries to scratch at it with its claws, but can't make the bend with its arms. It then tries with its other claw, bending over forward to reach the dart, throwing out the dart successfully. Just a moment too late for the dart to take effect, and it topples over. Dropping through its hind legs, it tumbles down on its left side, straight into dreamland. Its dark tongue got caught between its teeth slamming down, and starts bleeding right at the feet of guard Laura. A few drops of blood from the animal's tongue spattered on her boots. Sarah looks surprised at Tim. Great shot, Tim. Tim is still concentrating on the bushes. It's not alone. Laura scrambles to her feet, and now all guards are aiming at the bushes, moving slowly to take position, together with Vic Hoskins. A rustling sound, twigs snapping and bushes moving as two more Herrerasaurs run unseen through the bushes on their left and right, moving over a distance of about 10 yards before their sound stops again, and they only hear the animals growling softly. In the field in the distance again, a Corinthiosaurus gives an alerting honk, but they're not moving yet. Enough of this. Vic Hoskins pulls a pistol from his hip and fires into the air. The ground starts shaking. They hear the Herrerasaurus run off, shrieking. But they're not the ones that make the ground shake. It's a stampede of the herd of Hadrosaurs, honking and screaming, running away. Over the thunderous sound surrounding them, Vic motions to move out throwing his right arm in a big circle towards the cars. Alright, come on, to the cars! What about that? Take the dart, leave the creature. It'll go its way in an hour. Let's move! Thank you for listening again to episode 16. In this episode you heard James Hawkins as Marty Guterres, Hector Salazar Morales as Guterres' pilot, Jennifer Tarek as Sarah Harding, myself as Tim Murphy, Jaroslav Kosmina as Vic Hoskins and introducing Jurassic Cast podcast Sam Phillips as guard Andy, Victoria's Cantina Victoria as guard Laura, community member Nilis as guard Bob, and Bauke van der Schaaf as guard Dennis. And in this episode we heard a Jurassic World inspired fan made soundtrack by Neon Media KJT or Kurt Tomlinson. You can find this work on the Jurassic Outpost forum. Until next time and enjoy! All right, so there was episode 16. That one was called Encounter. And um, I don't know if you got that vibe, but it was definitely a much more slower-paced episode after the intensity of uh, the ending specifically of the last one. You know, the last episode, where were we at? Uh, 15, yeah. Um, that one was really dramatic with all the Sarah Harding stuff. And then specifically the very ending with the uh, Navy, you know, calling to Sorna and basically saying, hey, we're going to destroy this island in two hours. You better get out of here. That was really intense. I loved all the work at the end of that episode. And I think we kind of need a breather to set the pace before what I'm sure is going to be an, you know, super climactic ending here for Extinction Level. We got a lot of more episodes left, so it's not happening just yet. Um, But this episode, like I said, was a little bit slower paced, which is good. Um... But I thought I felt like it was actually full of cool introductions to new voices, new dinosaurs, um, some really cool scenes, and also tie-ins to Jurassic Park 3. So it starts off at on um, Isla Matanceras with Gutierrez. He's kind of saying his goodbyes to the to whoever's on the island. The helicopter's starting up behind him, but it actually shuts off for some reason, and he was certainly kind of confused by that. Um, But the pilot jumps out and says in Spanish a bunch of stuff, and I don't know Spanish, unfortunately, sorry. Um, But to me, I got the gist that, like, he's trying to relay the message that the island of destruction was coming soon. That's kind of what I thought I heard there. Um, And then it kind of, you know, from there it kind of flips back to Sorna with Vic uh, Vic Hoskins' team. They Remember they went out into the uh, jungle again, and they brought Tim and Sarah this time. So apparently they're out near the uh, old research center 
Um, and there's several other other guards there with them. And I guess they're kind of just, you know, staking out the area, seeing what's going on. And they're kind of walking slowly through the fields and the jungles. Um, one interesting note I saw was that Vic Hoskins' walkie goes off. And I was like, what, man, what's happening there? I, I feel like something was being said there, probably something important about maybe the uh, destruction of the island. But he's like, ah, forget it. I'm turning this off. Ignores it because he's, you know, he's on like a mission. I guess he doesn't want to give his position away or anything like that as well. Um, so, yeah, he shuts the thing off. But they pass through a herd of hadrosaurs, no threat there, um, enter the jungle again. And from there, they actually tie in here again to uh, Jurassic Park 3, and they find the body of a man with a mustache. Um, Tim doesn't know who this guy is. His neck is bent, there's a slash in his back, and I'm pretty certain we can conclude that this is Udesky. You know, in Jurassic Park 3, um, they were kind of outrunning the raptors, and they ended up in the trees. But Udesky wasn't there. He didn't. He didn't end up in the trees, and um, they just kind of um, slash his back and just leave him there. And you know, he's a trap essentially for the people that are up in the trees. And the raptors are that smart that you know they're like, well, we'll just injure this guy so he can't move per se. But um, you know, maybe the people up in the trees will come down. Then we're gonna have a nice dinner. Um, but they didn't fall for it. Luckily, uh, you know, they they knew better than to go down there. And that's how this guy's neck is bent or, or, you know, snapped is the raptors are like, all right, this is enough of this. I'm just going to snap his neck and get out of here. Um, they also find, um, you know, a gas canister from InGen Properties confused as to where that came from. We're not so confused because we know that um, Eric Kirby has this, you know, stockpile of stuff in that uh, container truck. And uh, so that's probably what that's from. But um, at that moment, they also spot two sets of tracks. So they're, they split up, but they actually decide to stick with the bigger group of tracks that seems to head towards the aviary. At that point, I guess they're, they're noticing that something is in the bushes. A Herrerasaurus um, appears, hesitates to bite um, one of the new members here of Vic Hoskins' team, Laura. It all seemed pretty chaotic. I think she fell down, but Tim uh, tranks the thing. It eventually passes out, bites its own tongue, splashing blood on Lara's boots. Now, I was like, that was another thing. I felt like, what's going on there? Is there anything that's going to come back from that? I, I, probably not, but I thought it was like a nice touch. She just, the thing bites its own tongue and the blood splashes out onto her boots. It was interesting. But I think they saw also two more Herrerasauruses and uh, they tried to run off and they go to try to find them. And eventually Vic is like, you know, enough of this. And he shoots his handgun up in the air, I guess to scare the dinosaurs off, but also scares the herd of Hadrosaurs as well. Um, you know, at that point, I guess the team runs back to the cars and that rounded out the episode there. So I feel like it's kind of leaving these points for the next part of the story pretty well, um, where we're going to go from there. And uh, also, there was some really great work here from, from new members of the, uh, you know, ex Extinction Level team here. We had Sam Phillips from Jurassic Cast Podcast, uh, Victoria from Victoria's Cantina, uh, Neilis, who is at Neilis1983 on Twitter. Um, and I love how wide this series is branching out within the fandom. Arjun is able to build such a wide net of people in this community to participate in this segment. It's so awesome. And he's doing an amazing job assembling this, putting the project together, and creating a place where literally everybody from the Jurassic community can come together, participate. You know, it's bigger than any podcast or video or anything out there. There are so many members from the community in this one piece of work, this audio drama that Arjun has put together. I think it's a great thing, and I can't wait to see it expanded even more. We've got a bunch of episodes coming up that we're going to air here first. Arjun is putting these all out on his YouTube, so definitely go there. It's something that I am really excited to hear all together, um, you know, as a, you know, I don't know how long it is, hour, hour and a half, I'm not sure, but it'll be great to hear it all come together as one piece of work at the end. So yeah, that was episode 16. Stay tuned for another two weeks. We'll have episode 17 of Extinction Level Jurassic Park. Oh, I'm losing my voice. We're out of a job. Don't you mean extinct? Extinct scenes, or scenes that didn't make the cut into Extinction Level. In my original 2013 fan screenplay, the first, Tim, then already a soldier, yet still troubled by his experience in Jurassic Park, had his nightmare in a car, standing, waiting on the side of the road, 
Instead of at his college, the T-Rex came walking through the streets in Afghanistan, where he was stationed. Returning home, he was welcomed by his mother, Hammond's daughter, Lex and his grandfather, the then 90-year-old John Hammond, who had himself started the expedition to Sorna to investigate the disease. He wanted Tim to conquer his fears and be his eyes and ears on a mission on Isla Nublar, while John Hammond would stay on Sorna. Tim's mission would be the main story of the second screenplay. Due to the death of John Hammond described on Masrani Global having taken place in 1998, to fit the canon with this in mind, John Hammond would never set foot again on the islands. Some of his parts transferred to other characters like inviting Tim, now done by Saima Masrani. Of course, Hoskins wasn't part of the old screenplays, but his role was filled by a military man by the name of Maston. As heard on this episode of Extinction Level, episode 16, Herrerasaurus would have their place on Tim's storyline on Nublar, though they would not actually feature. According to the original Jurassic Park brochure, Herrerasaurus had a paddock on Isla Nublar. In the second screenplay, the team on which Tim was placed would walk past this paddock, seeing the familiar identification sign. Tim, as the dinosaur specialist, had to explain what these herosaurs were. Tim described them as waist-high small carnivores. This didn't really make the soldiers nervous. Continuing their mission, they walked through a tunnel, like we see in the Jurassic Park movie where the touring cars had come through to arrive at the T-Rex paddock. I imagine these tunnels were filled with artwork, like we see inside the operations building on Sorna in the Lost World. But then foretelling a bit of which dinosaur they could expect like art of the Herrerasaurus at the Herrerasaurus paddock. The team enters the tunnel with Humvees and soldiers on foot. In the dark they shine their flashlight on the walls, enjoying the artwork. Until the team halts, the leaders ran into a nesting site, small carnivorous dinosaurs. And of course, the leaders think they found the Herrerasaurus nesting site. No adults, but they don't fear the Herrerasaurus on what Tim had described. Then someone mentions to Tim, who is waiting with him more to the back of the group, that the depicted dinosaurs in the art look much bigger, based on some details in the artwork, than what Tim had described about the Herrerasaurus. To this, Tim replies that this is indeed not Herrerasaurus, but more likely to be Allosaurus, at which time the adults return in the dark tunnel and chaos takes over, scattering the team on the island. Listen. Copies. I read your book. Let's go. I got turned around here. What's high here? Is this a bird or something? Yeah. Did you read Malcolm's book? You don't want to know. And I appreciate that. And then my teacher told me about this other book by a guy named Backer, and he... Oh, it's... it's great. Mommy! Daddy! You've got to come see this! I found something! Where are you? When he and Jen played out, they left a lot of stuff behind. Dessert? Sure. This is T-Rex tea. I read both of your books. Well, that's two things that we have in common. Hello, y'all, and welcome to this segment of The Missing Copies. The voice you're hearing is Justin Kiley. We spared no expense, and I'm joined by my beautiful assistant, Elizabeth Harden. Why don't you say hi, Elizabeth? Hi, Elizabeth Harden. Oh, I'm sorry I called you Elizabeth. She likes Liz better. Let's go with Liz. How you doing, Liz? I'm fantastic. How are you doing? I'm good. So how excited are you about the uh, Fallen Kingdom trailer, Liz? I'm super psyched. Uh, looks like there's going to be some throwbacks to even the original movie um, with the Ford Explorer upside down, maybe some more of the old visitor center, I'm hoping. Um, should be a good time. Yes, it should. Is there anything that struck you about the trailer? You know, like things uh, in reference to the book, maybe? Certain animals popping up? I did notice it looks like there's going to be an encounter uh, between a couple characters uh, Rexy, and one of the dinosaurs, I believe it is a Carnotaur, if I'm not mistaken. Um, super cool segment in the Lost World novel, um, where the Carnotaur kind of camouflaged and blended into its background and kind of crept up on the camp, uh, freaked them out. Definitely worth reading the book for that scene alone, um, but I'm super excited for the Carnotaur, it looks really cool. 
Yeah, it does. It's They changed their color a lot, though. In the book, it's supposed to be white, and I assume because of the Indominus, they must have uh, decided they wanted to make it look a little bit more like the old Kenner toy that we all love, and you have no idea what I'm talking about. Ah, uh, that might be before my time. That toy might be, I'm afraid. I don't think I even had that toy. Wish I did. But yeah, it's pale white in the book, and uh, the reason they find it is because it can't mimic with a flashlight on it, and so they're all in a building, and they shine flashlights at it, and it screws up the pattern and it's trying to blend in with a chain link fence and uh, it's a really cool scene I don't think we're gonna see anything like that in the movie but it would have been neat if they could have done that and uh, Velociraptors also changed color in the book uh, well, there's always hope for Jurassic World number three yeah yeah what, what would you want to see in a Jurassic World number three um, one of the biggest things I was I was hoping to see in Jurassic World but it didn't quite work out um, call back to Jurassic Park one. Um, not too far in, Dennis Nedry falls down the embankment there, can't find his glasses, loses his little shaving cream can of embryos. I was really hoping Zack and Gray would have found it when they were walking around in Jurassic World, but they didn't, so I'm holding out hope that someday we'll, we'll get the cameo from the Barbasol can. Kind of find it fossilized, if you will. Well, it wouldn't be too far from, oh no, it would be far from where the Ford Explorer was. But, you know, theoretically, they're headed to the East Dock. I mean, we could we could probably see the uh, the old car with Nedry's fat skeleton in it. Uh, you know. Well, Mr. Kylie, skeletons aren't really fat themselves, but I see where you're going. Well, whatever. Big boned, then. I don't know. Big boned, full figured. Not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> well, speaking of Fallen Kingdom, one of the things I wanted to talk about is something I've been noticing a lot in the Jurassic park community and certainly online and that is the some of the criticisms that they're kind of throwing towards that trailer and um as somebody that loves the books and has read the first book i think once a year the last 20 years uh there's something in that book that i think a lot of people aren't really thinking about which is the, the criticism is if they could make dinosaurs and why bother saving them because they can just make more there's no reason to save these dinosaurs when you can just clone more dinosaurs. You get where I'm going with that, Liz? I do. Interesting thought. Here's the thing. The whole idea behind, or one of the ideas behind the book, and definitely something that Malcolm, I think, is maybe going to bring up in this movie, is that it's not the fact that these animals can be cloned again. It's that we clone them, you cloned, humans cloned them in the first place, and it's the question of what is our responsibility. They are our creations. It's not that we can't make more, it's that we created these in the first place and then we're just going to leave them to die i mean it's an argument that's been in all the films to varying degrees from i think malcolm kind of says something about that in the first one but i mean the second one ludlow had that whole quote about you know they're they're own, we own them they're patented and we can do what we want with them and then in jurassic world hoskins says that extinct animals have no rights yes so it's it's just another variation on that argument, and nobody is bringing it up, so it's really frustrating, because it's not about why we would save, like, why we wouldn't just leave them to die. It's an ethical question. It's, once you make these animals, what responsibilities do you have to them? Yeah, I don't know. It'll be curious. I'm kind of hoping Malcolm will comment on that in some regard. Um, it'd be interesting to hear his philosophy on that, I guess, if you, if you will. Yeah, you think Malcolm is going to be pro-dinosaur saving or uh, pro-volcano wiping him out? I feel like he's, you know, the, as I think about it, I really don't know. Because on the one hand, I think he's going to um, try to hold the, everybody accountable um, who was involved. However, with his whole kick on natural selection, I don't know what, if he's going to have this natural event of a volcano kind of cleanse the, do what cleanse nature does and so you know I, I don't know see and that goes back to my whole thing because i don't know i think if you look at it from the standpoint of we created them it is our responsibility to try and save them and i think malcolm could argue i think he could argue for that i mean in the book he's a little bit different of a character and a little bit smarter than than movie malcolm i mean movie malcolm is witty, but I I don't know how smart that Malcolm is. The the book Malcolm he definitely has a lot more to say about nature and about mankind and about all of our 
assumptions, I guess you'd say. I mean, it's there's a lot there, but um, yeah, I'll be curious to see what he does with that and what the film does with that idea. So, Liz, what are some of the differences you remember from the uh, novels to the films, any of the films? Um, probably starting out right away, book one, um, you have the introduction of a couple characters who had encounters, I guess you could say, uh, with some dinosaurs before we even get to our main characters, John Hamm and Dr. Grant. Um, starting off with the employee who in the book is allegedly attacked by, what was it, an excavator? He's supposedly run over by a, yeah, it's a construction accident. I believe it was a backhoe ran him over and uh, was supposedly dragging him, which is why he has cuts. So you have that difference between the book alleged construction accident, where at, up until that point in the novel, as the reader, you're not 100% sure what really happened versus in the movie, you see it happen, it's front and center, and it, there's no question in the movie, it was the dinosaurs doing um, that led to his demise. Um, there's also in the first book, shortly after that um, description with the employee, you have a little girl uh, with her family on an island, they're kind of enjoying the day, gonna have lunch, and the girl kind of goes gallivanting around the island, she's on some school project I think it is, right? Yeah, she's uh, she's looking for a three-toed sloth. Uh, she had like a little book. I think I used to do it when I was a kid, too. It was like a little book, and she's checking off and writing down the animals she sees, and she's going to use it as yeah, like a school report. And so she's doing her thing, and then she comes up, hears some noises, fast forward a little bit to take her to the doctor. Well, it must have been a lizard of some sort. I've seen this before. It's just a lizard bite. Uh, whereas we both know, fast forward to the Lost World introduction movie, <laughs> you find the little girl getting attacked by the compies, and her family freaks out. It's kind of interesting to see one introduction, I guess you could say, to the novel as the reader knowing it's something's not quite right, but to have them split up into two movies, it was kind of a nice setup for both, I think. Especially with the Lost World getting introduced to the compies, knowing that they're still there. Different islands, though. But that's the thing. How did they get there? Oh, you have to read the they, book to find out. I think they migrated over. That is one plot line from the book that uh, the movie doesn't doesn't have at all, which I I really missed. Which uh, in the book, there's a big plot of the dinosaurs, or well, that them getting off the island. It's it's actually the biggest thing that Gennaro is worried about. He isn't just worried about the safety of the island. They're worried about animals getting off the island and onto Costa Rica and onto the mainland and just causing havoc. And, I mean, they, they do get off. There's the copies, or Procognathus, uh, right at the start of the book. We we don't know what they are, but later on you find out that what the little girl got attacked by were these copies. I mean, the book, they're, they're poisonous. She actually almost dies. Reminds um, me of a little mini Dilophosaurus. Yeah, it's too bad they got rid of that in the movies, too. It would have made uh, Dieter Stark's death a lot more logical in The Lost World if that, uh, they were poisonous and that he had just had so much poison in him from the eight million of them that were on him. That's why he falls over the log and, and they eat him. And That'd not, be cool. You know. Yeah, it would have just made that make more sense, because otherwise it's like, why didn't he... You're not going to get that tired. I just I never bought that, that death scene. So if they had just kept a line in there about, hey, they're poison... Uh, but besides that, yeah, the, the book, they, they, there's a big threat of them getting off the island, and we find out that the little compies have been killing babies. There's a really uh, grisly scene of one of the compies, actually, uh, a couple of them eating a baby's face off. The compie ate your baby. Yeah, I can't do accents at all. should do it again. <laughs> the compie ate your baby. Gotta love an English accent. That is English, right? It's my pathetic attempt at Australian. My apologies, Ooh, everybody. Ouch. Off on a tangent. Um, where was I? Oh, yeah. So the copies. Yeah, they eat a baby. And uh, besides copies, about midway through the book, we also find out that there's baby velociraptors on a boat. And the boat is uh, the supply ship, and it's headed back to the mainland. And then, you know, basically what happens in the movie kind of happens. The book's a lot more detailed. But power goes out. They get, you know, the T-Rex attack happens, and so there's this race against time as Grant and the kids need to get back to tell 
you know, to tell the visitor center that uh, there's dinosaurs and they're off the island and they're on a boat. And so it's a cool little race against time, and the movie doesn't have that. And I don't know, it's a, it added a lot of urgency to the story, which I think the movie could have benefited from. I mean, all it would have taken was one scene of Tim using the goggles and looking at the boat and seeing the raptors, because that's what they do in the book. I Too mean, bad Gennaro told them they were heavy, which meant they were expensive. It's because Gennaro's a bumbling idiot in the movie. <laughs> and that doesn't even happen in the book, so I don't know who wrote that in, but... A little I mean, comedic relief. Yeah, it's funny. I just, you know... Me and my book period. I mean, Gennaro's so different in the book. He's described as a muscular man. It's just he's not the Gennaro of the movie. Like, he's not a, a weakling or an idiot. I mean, he's a smart guy in the book, and in the movie he's kind of... Yeah, he's a comic relief, and then he gets eaten because he needed to run out of the car for no reason at all and thinks hiding in a bathroom stall is going to be a great plan. Actually, where would you hide if that was you? Would you have stayed in the cars, or would you have ran? If it were me, I'd have been in the car and not turned on a giant spotlight. Yeah. But, that Absolutely. aside... It's a good question. You know, I, I, I'd probably go for the bathroom myself, but try and do it when Rexy's not looking. Well, Rexy doesn't see him do it. Rexy only finds him because Rexy puts her head through it when she's trying to kill Malcolm. Yeah, that, that's all Malcolm's fault, ain't it? Yeah, had he kinda, not thrown the flare yeah, and ran around, Gennaro might still be alive. Well, that's a good segue, Alternate actually. ending. Deleted scenes. Just a book. Gennaro doesn't die in the book. He lives. He actually makes it through the whole thing. In fact, he uh, goes one-on-one -on -one with a raptor and, uh, and wins. Uh, the only character, the character that gets killed by the Rex is a character named Ed Regis, and he was the inspiration for the movie Gennaro. Most of his lines were given to Gennaro. His cowardness was given to Gennaro. In the book, Ed Regis opens the door and runs, just like in the movie, except it's Ed Regis, not Gennaro. But he runs down a hill, then falls down a hill, and he ends up wedging himself between a couple of rocks while the whole attack happens. And he isn't killed by the adult, he's killed by the juvenile T-Rex, which is another thing that the Lost World used, which was the idea of the baby T-Rex. That's in the first book. In fact, there's a really cool thing where he's hunting goldfish in the pond with his mouth. Little Rexy? Yeah, he, he like ducks his head in the water and he just holds his mouth open like a gator. <laughs> and uh, he, The thing that's weird is he keeps getting sick from the water and they can't figure out why. Poor thing. Yeah, poor Rexy. But... Yeah, he's the one that gets Ed Regis, and it's I mean it's pretty pretty graphic and and cool. Uh, he he basically he, he's like a cat. Regis gets up to where the main road is and sees what has happened. But you know one of the cars is missing, and he doesn't really know what's going on. And so he's just like walking around, and Vinny he runs into the woods and he's hiding, and he knows that there's a dinosaur, but he doesn't really know what dinosaur. I don't think, uh, but he's hiding and. And the scene, like, all the uh, crickets and stuff, they all, like, shut up, and so it's just total silence, and he sees it walk past, and then all the crickets come back on, all the, the you know, the noises of the forest come back, and so he thinks it's safe, and he steps out from behind the tree, and it's right there behind him, and it kicks him over, and it just starts playing with him like a cat with a mouse. Well, that'll learn him. Yeah, you know. But, he, yeah, and he gets his throat ripped out, so, you know. Kind of, kind of Gennaro-ish, not, not the same, but, you know, that's definitely where they took that cue of the dude opening the door and running for it. Is there anything else you, uh, you remember that's a big difference in, in your mind? One thing I can't, I uh, get quite over, um, in terms of differences, book Lex versus movie Lex. <laughs> for starters, different ages. Yeah, she's, um, seven, seven or eight in the book. Uh, I don't know, how old do you think Lex is in the film? Because I don't think they actually say... My best guess... 12. Yeah, yeah, I guess I could see that. I'm, I'm terrible with ages, but... Yeah, 12, 12, 13. But, yeah, that is one big difference. Uh, the, the character ages were switched because uh, Tim is 12 in the book. Tim is older, yes. Yeah, although still obsessed with dinosaurs. So, other than the age difference, his character is actually pretty pretty close but uh lex is quite a bit different i assume liz you're going to talk about how how she behaves in the book well one thing that i still remember quite clearly she's always like carried this baseball around with her yep. um and the biggest thing that i still 
remember clearly and distinctly was how much Book Lex whined, complained. And bear in mind, as I'm reading this in my head, it's in an annoying voice, so if it's annoying in my head, <laughs> I can only imagine how annoying it might have been on screen. Um, but I like how in the movie, um, yeah, she kind of gets the short end of the stick a little bit, um, getting sneezed on and everything, but I like, she seems more independent to me in the movie, um, which again, in comparison to the book, I found very refreshing. Yeah, she's, I mean, she's, what, seven in the book, and, I mean, yeah, halfway through the book, you kind of just want a, a T-Rex to eat her. Not I mean. that I was probably a well-put-together, well-adjusted seven-year-old oh. myself. I'm sure I complained a fair amount myself, but still. No, I think it's it's realistic. I'm just it's it's a seven year old on a dinosaur infested island, you know, and it's yeah, I mean it's totally realistic, but like I said, you just want her to get eaten at some point. She almost uh she almost does actually there there's another good sequence. So The Lost World really did take a lot of cues from that first book because in the Lost World, the film there's the scene where Malcolm, Kelly, and, oh boy, I'm blanking on the name here, Nick Van Owen get trapped behind a waterfall, and a T-Rex pops its head through. I think it's the bull T-Rex, if I remember right. And it, like, sticks its tongue out. Oh, and there's the Robert Barker character. I forget what his movie name is, but he was inspired by Robert Barker. And, um, yeah, he gets eaten, and uh, the T-Rex rips him out and uh, lifts him up and then bites him, and the waterfall turns red. It's, it's a cool sequence. It has taken right out of the first book, though, because in, in the novel Jurassic Park, it's Lex and Tim and Grant who are behind a waterfall where uh, Rexy puts her head through, and uh, Grant finds, like, a... It's a maintenance... Basically, the river's a man-made river, and behind the waterfall, there's a maintenance door, and Grant goes behind it and then gets locked behind it. So he's back there in the pitch black, and that's when Rexy decides to try to eat... Uh, Lex and Tim, and actually, I believe she gets her tongue wrapped around, I want to say Lex, and dragged out of that waterfall, and the only reason she doesn't get eaten is because Muldoon put a uh, tranquilizer dart into Rexy, and so she basically finally falls asleep in the waterfall, and I think Lex says, I hope you drown, so... It's an interesting scene that, again, they, they decided to, to remix and, uh, and use in the Lost World, and it I don't think it makes as much sense in The Lost World, but it was nice to see that scene as a book fan. I don't know. For sure, for sure. What else you got, Liz? There's got to be something else that you, uh, you got in your notes there. Um, one, I guess the difference in that it's not in the movie that I wish was, um, periodically throughout the uh, first Jurassic Park novel, um, Michael Crichton kind of puts in to the book what could be considered a screenshot, uh, if you will, regarding the number of dinosaurs that are they recording almost like an inventory almost. Um, but there's not really mention of that in the movie. Had there been, they probably would have known, and had it been working correctly, they probably would have known already that dinosaurs were breeding on account of life found a way. Um, and I wish they would have put that in the movie. I thought it was really interesting in the novel to kind of get that sneak peek or look back to the number of dinosaurs and how it fluctuates. Yeah, I mean, that goes back to the whole... I mean, it's a big part of the dinosaurs getting, excuse me, off the island uh, plotline that they completely dropped on the movie because that... It's a, it's a counter. It uses motion sensors uh, and cameras to basically count every animal on the island individually. And it has a target number of 238. And Michael Crichton, one of the things that he did in the book that, again, I don't think the movie really touched on was this idea of your assumptions being your downfall. And Malcolm constantly brings it up in the book as to basically all of the things that they assume come back to bite them in the butt. And one of the things that they assume is that there can't possibly be an, a dinosaur off the island because of this system of always tracking the number. If you know exactly what the number is, you can't possibly be missing one because it's 238 and never goes below 238. 
but they assume that and they make that assumption and what ends up happening is that they find out that it's basically just something the computer it's a target number they put it into the computer system and so once the computer reaches that it stops counting in actuality i think there's over 300 animals on the island so not only did could have some animals get off the island but they're also breeding which again is another thing they assume which is they can't possibly breed because we irradiated them and they control the chromosomes so makes it's sense just, in theory yeah it's just all these assumptions that the you know the designers of jurassic park make and it's it's something that you know it's a lot of plots were dropped but it's another thing where malcolm book malcolm kind of has a leg up on movie malcolm because movie malcolm never like brings like none of these ideas or themes are in the movie and i really liked this idea of basically hubris of their assumptions kind of being their downfall and you know the movie really doesn't do that so it, it's a cool thing and it's it's neat it's a neat, neat aspect of the book and i agree i wish they had put a lot of that in i mean it it would have been neat but when they cut that copy subplot out i think they it was a natural thing to just cut this out because it really only affects that plot line sure and they come on they barely kept the the sex change thing like in the movie that doesn't really matter like there's no ramifications for it you know it's not it's almost a plot line they could have cut out it wouldn't change the movie at all the only thing the movie it does in the movie is of course malcolm's famous life finds a way like life finds a way to breathe so other than like that connection it has no plot bearing at all whereas in the book it has much more serious implications so always something that the movie kind of surprised me as far as keeping it and getting rid of the rest but you know i didn't direct the movie or write it <laughs> sure and it's a great movie so by all means it was a, a i guess a good choice all right liz well if uh, you don't have anything else i guess i'll let you take it away no that i think that will do it for this segment of the missing compies big thank you to brad jost for allowing us this time on the jurassic park podcast if you had any questions or items that you wanted us to discuss, please feel free to shoot us an email, themissingcompies at hotmail.com. See show notes for details. If I don't innovate, somebody else will. Due to technical difficulties, all our exhibits are now closed. We're acting like we are engaged in some kind of mad science. And Zara here is going to take great care of you until I'm done working tonight, okay? Bigger, scarier, um, cooler, I believe is the word that you use in your memo. Any incidents? Yeah, six kids in the lost and found, uh, 28 down with heat stroke. All of this exists because of me. Just like taking a stroll through the woods 65 million years ago. Hello everyone, it is Tom. I am back here today in the lovely warm confines of a fully functioning innovation centre. We've got everything fixed up, we're back up to speed, and I'm lovely and warm here inside despite the fact that the weather today on Nublar is a little bit on the stormy side. So I'm here today with a little bit of a quick update to just remind you guys that you still have time to get your entries into our Jurassic giveaway. If you visit our website, Jurassic Park Podcast, you'll be able to see the giveaway post for the Hasbro Terra Mimus. This is a really cool hybrid. I've said in the past, the colour scheme reminds me a bit of the dragons that we see in Avatar. And I don't know, I think somebody's going to really, really like it, hopefully. Just so you guys are aware, from Tuesday night, I will no longer be on Twitter. I'm going away for a little bit, so I won't be checking my Twitter while I'm away. And I will be back Monday next week. So I come back right around when the competition ends. So if you don't see a winner announced straight away, just bear with me. I'll have just got back home. I'll be unpacking my stuff and then I'll be looking to announce a winner shortly, therefore, afterwards. Okay, so once the competition ends, if you don't hear anything for a couple of days, guys, don't be worried. Me and Brad have got this well under wraps. We've all worked it out already and we've got a system in place to decide a random winner. So, 
you will hear about that as soon as I'm back and settled and I'm really really excited to be able to give this toy to somebody who's really going to appreciate it as a Jurassic fan. Thank you for all your support as always guys, seen a lot of love for the article I've just done on dinos in the wild and a lot of support for the other articles I've written recently and just generally as a whole we've had a really great time interacting with the community recently, especially around the new trailer and other things. So keep those awesome questions and conversations going guys and I look forward to getting back in touch with you all very very soon. Make sure to visit JurassicParkPodcast.com to find all our past episodes, brand new news articles, information on how to contact us, and much more. It's a great source for everything related to the podcast, and of course, Jurassic Park and Jurassic World. Head to JurassicParkPodcast.com and help us build a great community. Anybody hear that? Thanks for listening to episode 137 of uh, the Jurassic Park podcast. Man, I'm losing it. Yeah, sorry you had to listen to me talk this whole time. Uh, but of course, a big thanks to Arjun for episode 16 of Extinction Level. Another great episode, expanding that world that he is building and leaving us even more intrigued for the next episode, which is coming on February 26th. Stay tuned. Also, thanks to Justin Kylie and Elizabeth Harding for an interesting look at Fallen Kingdom and for comparing aspects of the books to the films. I do think that this is a great addition to the podcast here. Um, we haven't had anything like this before, hearing how the books shape the films and certainly differ from them. Lastly, thanks to Tom Fishenden for talking about his contest. He's giving away that Terra Mimus, and it concludes on February 19th, 12 EST. So definitely head to our website, fill out that form for your chance to win the Terra Mimus. And now onto the much better pre-recorded version of myself. If you want to interact with us, we do most of our work over on Twitter, at Jurassic Park Pod. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash Jurassic Park Podcast. And our Instagram handle is at Jurassic Park Podcast. You can listen to us via iTunes, Google Play, Podomatic, YouTube, our website, or wherever else podcasts are found. So make sure to subscribe to automatically get new episodes every week. If you haven't already, please give us a five-star review in iTunes or a great review wherever you listen to the podcast. It will seriously help out our rankings and make it easier for fans like you to find us. We're usually spotted commenting on the Jurassic Park subreddit as Jurassic Park Podcast. Don't forget to check out JurassicParkPodcast.com for all the links you heard here today. If you want to get a hold of us, you can email us with any news stories, MP3s, comments, or if you want to debut a segment of your own, send them to JurassicParkPod at gmail.com. Or you can submit questions directly on our website contact form. If you'd like to record something for the show, send it in to us and we'll feature it in an upcoming episode. If you don't have any way to record, you can give our voicemail line a call and leave us a message. That number is 732-825-7763. Thanks for listening and enjoy. No, I'm, I'm simply saying that life uh, finds a way. Five minutes. Drop what you're doing and leave now.